Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. guys, I want to take a quick moment to introduce this episode by saying that we do tackle a pretty serious uh, topic in this episode on um, racism and police brutality, um, and that is very relevant to what's happening in the news right now. And while it's a wonderful discussion and I have a great guest this week, I do want to stress that, you know, we as two white people talking about this. We are commenting on how we feel about the film and on our experiences with it and our thoughts, but we are certainly not uh, educators on the subject and we would highly recommend that you educate yourself and do research and make sure that you're taking the time, especially with everything going on right now, to elevate and listen to black voices and just, you know, be a good ally, make yourself aware. Um, so definitely wanted to introduce that at the top. Of course, watch all of Spike Lee's films because they're awesome. Um, and yeah, enjoy the show. Hey, this is Lisa, and you can catch up with me on Twitter at ILTM Podcast. You can also find me on Instagram. I love that movie podcast. And you can support us on Patreon. Uh, the show is free, but if you want to support us on there, you can. And I wanted to take a second to thank my top patrons, Chris Balga, Jeff Widman, Michael Cross, and Philip Barker. Thank you guys so much for keeping the lights on. And if you do subscribe to that, you do get an extra bonus episode of my weekly roundup of everything that I'm watching that week. And we have a lot of fun in there. Um, I've also got a Teespring, a Discord, and a Facebook group. And, of course, our website, I love that movie, podcast.com. If you like what you heard today, guys, please subscribe and rate the show. It does help new listeners find us. Uh, I've got a new guest with me here today. I have Christopher Llewellyn Reed. He's a filmmaker, film critic, and chair of the Film and Moving Image Department at Stevenson University. Say hi, Christopher. Hi there. Yes, I am Christopher Llewellyn Reed. I generally just go by Chris when not using my professional credentials. Uh, in addition to those things that Lisa just mentioned, I am also lead film critic at the website Hammer to Nail, uh, now the managing editor at Film Festival Today, where I also write plenty of reviews. I host a television program here in Maryland put out by Dragon Digital Media called Real Talk, with Christopher Llewellyn Reed, and I am co-host of uh, another podcast, uh, which you, Lisa, have been on called The Fog yeah. of Truth. It's a documentary-themed podcast. It's great to be on this podcast, Lisa. I have listened to a number of your episodes. I enjoy your conversations, and I'm looking forward to having one with you on our chosen movie. 
Wonderful. Yes, I'm so glad that you came on. I absolutely love your podcast and was so honored when you guys asked me to come on there, especially to talk about uh, the documentary Becoming. So I'm just so pleased to have you. And my guest always picks the movie. So what movie did you pick to talk about today? I picked Spike Lee's 1989 Do the Right Thing, which I thought would be fairly appropriate for the time in which we find ourselves in this sometimes great nation of ours at other times, (laughs) uh, a nation with quite a fraught uh, history. Um, And I think this film speaks to that. Uh, It speaks way beyond the time in which it was made. Um, It is a, a rousing discussion of race and racism in America. And I highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it. It's 31 years old and in many ways uh, feels extraordinarily present to our time. I could not agree more. This is also the first Spike Lee film that we've ever covered. So I'm excited about that. Say what? (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's always weird when somebody, not weird, but it's always well, it's exciting, and and I'm always shocked when somebody picks a movie from a famous director that we haven't covered yet. So I'm excited to talk about this with you, about this film, and about Spike Lee himself. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just really jazzed. Uh, before we continue, though, I want to go ahead and read the synopsis of the movie. Once again, guys, you know what I'm going to say. This is not spoiler free. So if you want to see the movie first, go do that and then come back. And here is the synopsis of the film. Salvatore is the Italian owner of a pizzeria in Brooklyn, a neighborhood local bugging out becomes upset when he sees that the pizzeria's wall of fame exhibits only Italian actors. Bugging out believes a pizzeria in a black neighborhood should showcase black actors, but Sal disagrees. The wall becomes a symbol of racism and hate to bugging out and to the other people in the neighborhood and tensions rise. Pretty straightforward uh, <laughs> synopsis. Yes, indeed. And since you mentioned bugging out, a number of times. I just want to point out to anyone who doesn't know that Buggin' Out is played by a young Giancarlo Esposito. So Giancarlo Esposito is perhaps best known these days uh, for playing Gus Fring in first Breaking Bad and then its prequel, Better Call Saul. And I'm a big fan of both of those shows. I actually think it's um, the best work uh, he has done in a long career of some really interesting Work. He was also in The Mandalorian recently as mm-hmm. the villain at the at the end, episode seven and eight of that really great series on Disney+. Plus. Um, Giancarlo Esposito has been an actor who, in my estimation, has given a variety of performances, some of them heavy-handed, some of them uh, really quite excellent. And as he's gotten older, I think, I think he's gotten much better. He was one of my favorite actors in the film by Bong Joon-ho on Netflix, Okja. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. He was in that. Yeah. He was, he's also going to be in uh, the uh, the show The Boys Season 2 is coming out. I literally just watched a trailer for it before we started recording. And we were like, hey, it's him again. Like yeah. He's just having such a moment right now. And that's pretty awesome. Yeah, and I really like him. He's also the killer in, in Spike Lee's Malcolm X. He's the guy who actually mm-hmm. pulls the trigger and kills uh, Denzel Washington's Malcolm X. Uh, he was in um, Wayne Wang's Smoke, 
in the nineties. I mean, he's an actor I, I like, but I definitely feel like as he's gotten older, he's gotten much better, but um, there are many other actors uh, in the film. And would you mind if I first uh, speak to um, my a personal connection I, I have to the oh, film? Absolutely. Go for it. Yeah. So one of the actors in the film is Roger Gunveer Smith, who plays Smiley, who's the stuttering uh, fan of Malcolm X. And it's sort of between bugging out and Smiley, uh, the two of them are uh, indirectly responsible for Sal, the pizzeria owner played by Danny Aiello that you mentioned, uh, blowing his top, losing his cool. Uh, mm-hmm. And Roger Gunvir Smith, uh, who's an actor who's been in plenty of Spike Lee films and plenty of other films. He's an actor with a long resume. In 2009, uh, had a daughter. He still has a daughter. But in 2009, his <laughs> daughter was a teenager. Her name is Luna, uh, who was interested in attending the summer camp that I had been running uh, at that time for many years out in Los Angeles for a company that's called Socapa School. At that time, it was School of Cinema and Performing Arts. It's since rebranded to be School of Creative and Performing Arts, I believe. I, I was one of the founding faculty, and for a long time, I would run their programs in Los Angeles. It was at Occidental College. Anyway, so Roger Gunver smith uh, contacted us over uh, the spring, uh, saying, hey, and my daughter would like to attend this camp. It was a filmmaking, acting, dancing, and photography camp. She wanted to take directing, um, I think. I could look it up. Directing or acting. And uh, so uh, he wanted to you know, offer his services as an acting teacher uh, for tuition remission, right? He said, I can offer this, and then my daughter can attend the camp. It's a win-win. Um and so, yeah, so he, he basically, he worked for me because I was a summer camp director. Uh, he was great. He really brought a lot of wonderful uh, Hollywood and, and independent experience to the classes that he taught. I later uh, brought him to Stevenson University, which is located here uh, just outside Baltimore where I live. Uh, to be an artist in residence at the program uh, where I then was teaching and now run. And uh, he was great then too, really brought a lot of great things into the classroom. I really like him and admire his his performances in film. So I have that connection. And then I, also uh, nine years prior when I was um, still a graduate student at NYU's uh, grad film program, uh, Spike Lee, uh, who at that time was early on in his time teaching at NYU. Now he's been doing it for quite a while. He may even be artistic director of the program. Um, but so he was teaching a course as he had been for a few years in the spring, a course on directing. And uh, so it was then taking that course back in the spring of 2000 that I realized how much more than just directing films, Spike Lee Done. directs commercials, directs music videos, and he brought mm-hmm. in a lot of people uh, to the class uh, who had been working with him for a while, including production designer Win Thomas, who is the production designer on Do the Right Thing, line producer John Killick, who worked on Do the Right Thing, and editor Barry Alexander Brown, who has cut lots of other Spike Lee films. He did not cut his most recent one, To Five Bloods, but he did cut Black Klansman. So these people came into the classroom. I uh, talked about Do the Right Thing, but lots of other films. So yeah, I, I feel like it's a film that not only I've seen many, many times, but I've met many of the people who worked on it. And so uh, not only do I think highly of it, uh, but I feel like I've, I've gotten a lot of firsthand 
testimonials about about the film. I know that was long. Uh, you can cut me out of the podcast. It can just be you. <laughs> no, no, that's great. I mean, I'm I'm quiet because I'm taking your story in. That's really cool. Um, you know, it's pretty rare that that you have a deep connection like that. But of course, like you know, teaching in the film world, you get to see a different side of all these people that put this film together. Yeah. Do we want to talk briefly about the cast before we talk about uh, things we like about the film itself? Sure. Actually, right before we do that, I have my three quick facts. <laughs> okay. Um, I always tell a couple quick facts. And if you have some that you want to jump in with, you totally can um, or add to them. And then after that, we'll go ahead and start talking about the, the cast and about Spike Lee, too. Um, the first one I have is that this film was inspired by an actual incident in New York City where some black youths were chased out of a pizzeria by some white youths in the section of New York City known as Howard Beach. Excellent. I do not have <laughs> I do not have any facts. Um, <laughs> oh, no, uh, oh, no, that's not true, actually. Um, so when the film came out, because it talks about a quote unquote race riot, um, which is a term, I, I don't like that term, but that's how it was um, portrayed in the media at the mm -hmm. time. Uh, there was fear, at least I remember, I was 20 at the time, uh, I remember uh, fear that this film itself would incite race riots. Um, and of course, it's, it's ridiculous, because if you see the film, it's this really you know, intelligent, measured uh, meditation on the issues that lead to the riot and lead to, is it okay to, to say how it ends? You said plot spoilers are okay. Oh yeah, no, yeah. I think you yeah, can yeah, say how yeah. it ends. Yeah. And leads to the killing of, I wouldn't say a, a main character, but a, an important character in the film, Radio Rahim, played by Bill Nunn. Uh, and the idea that just by portraying a riot that has its roots in America's long history of racism and the police, the the racist policing of our cities and beyond is ridiculous. Uh, and the, the film is by no means, I mean, I don't think art in general can be held responsible for the behavior of people who then might may or may not go out and do things. But this film, just because it's talking about, about uh, a riot and about police brutality, and it happens to be directed by a then up and coming African-American director, you know, these are not facts that should cause fear, right? And it's an intelligent discussion of the issues. Um, it remains one of my favorite films of Spike Lee's. Um, and so I remember that. I remember that fact that people, you know, or at least some uh, mainstream media uh, reports were that there might be riots. Um, well, yeah, there's always this big disconnect, right? You know, every time something like this happens, you know, most recently with George Floyd, we almost act like it's the first time it's ever happened. And then we blame either that one incident or someone even just discussing the incident like, oh, well, you're actually causing the violence. You're causing this. You're causing that. And we pretend like there's not this long, long history of these incidents. You know, somebody making a film that at least addresses it, at least puts a spotlight on it, is not inciting violence. It's just bringing awareness. And it just seems to be, you know, when you pick this movie and I had not seen it before. Um, and then I saw it, I just, you know, like you were saying at the beginning, it's amazing how incredibly relevant it is. And it's sad that it's so relevant still, but yeah, there's no way that this film caused anything to happen. It was just basically reporting the facts. Yeah. Reporting the facts in an artistically interesting way. I mean, this film for me 
I actually can't remember if it is the first Spike Lee film I saw. I'm pretty sure that I saw She's Gotta Have It first. Uh, and mm. that that, along with the Nike ads that followed with Spike Lee playing the character Mars Blackman that he plays in She's Gotta Have It, um, were, if memory serves me correctly, this is many years ago, my first exposure to Spike Lee She's Got to Have It is his first uh, real feature. He, he'd done uh, one just before uh, called uh, We Cut Heads, I believe, um, which uh, Joe's Bed Stye Barbershop, We Cut Heads, which I've seen as well. Uh, but it's an hour-long film. I don't really know what kind of theatrical release it got, if anything. So really, She's Got to Have It uh, is the first film of his I, I, I may have seen before seeing do the right thing. He made school days in between. She's got to have it and do the right thing, but do the right thing was really, uh, despite the success in indie circles of, um, she's got to have it, uh, which is an itself an interesting film, uh, where he's working with a lot of the same people that he would work with afterwards, including production designer, Wynn Thomas. Uh, but, uh, do the right thing is really his sort of explosion uh, onto the scene. It, you know, it was nominated for two Academy Awards, um, best writing uh, for a screenplay written directly for the screen, what we would now call best original screenplay, and best actor in a supporting role for Danny Aiello. So really, he arrived uh, with this movie, even though he'd made two features. So I don't remember if I saw this film on video or in a theater. I know I probably should. I feel like. I'd been hearing about it, and then I saw it on video, which means I probably saw it on VHS, uh, this being 1989, 1990. Yeah. I mean, there wouldn't have been DVDs, right? So if I yeah. saw it on video, I saw it on on VHS. Um, now, of course, I own it on Blu-ray. <laughs> 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 um, which is also slowly becoming like now it's just digital. <laughs> yeah, now it's just digital. I'm still a disc guy when it's a film I want to have access to whenever, though. Yeah. Um, but mainly I because I, te- I, I teach. And since um, it's, you know, it was ruled uh, a number of years ago that educators can use uh, clips from films if they you know, contextualize them for teaching. Uh, it's much easier for me to access these um, through the discs than sometimes through the digital files. So um, I, I would sense, only yeah. do it as, as a way to present in a class and, uh, you know, owning the disc as I do. Um, but um, in any case, uh, it's a film that's been important to me for a long time. And for a long time, Spike Lee's work at, at that time was important to me. Um, but let's, sorry, let's, let's talk, I guess, about the film more before you, you, you know, well, let's do that before we jump into longer discussions. Oh yeah. Well, I was going to mention too, you were talking about the two nominations and, uh, I read that during the 1990 Oscar ceremony while announcing best picture, Kim Basinger caused some controversy when she ignored her script. And instead she said, we've got five great films here and they're great for one reason because they tell the truth, but there's one film missing from this list that deserves to be on it because ironically it might tell the biggest truth of all. And that's do the right thing. Wow. I don't remember that, but that is a great, great story. Yeah. Um, Spike Lee, I mentioned it on an episode of uh, unspooled. So yeah, I was like, wow, you know, that's, um, that's true. I mean, because Uh, I had also read that according to uh, former President Barack Obama at a fundraiser in New York City, he and First Lady Michelle Obama saw the movie on their first date in 1989, though they were also planning to see 
driving Miss Daisy <laughs> in 1989. <laughs> Spike Lee later joked that that, relation, uh, that relationship would probably not have worked out had Barack chosen the latter. <laughs> that is and funny. And it, it just... It reminds you of what's happened, what happened with uh, Black Klansman, right? It was kind of a similar thing where a sort of he lost, driving he, Miss Daisy. He, he lost to a, a, a white, a white person driving a black person. Uh, and he'll, I think he made a comment about that. He that, did. That he'll yeah. always lose out. If there's a film about a white person <laughs> driving a black person, he will lose. Um, yeah. It seems really tone deaf. It's like, wow. But um Again, I guess with history repeating itself. But those were all my facts. So we can totally dive into the movie now. If you wanted to talk about, you were saying the cast first? Uh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the the nominated Danny Aiello gives, I think, a really solid uh, performance as Sal. I mean, most of the characters mm-hmm. are, are are written as pretty nuanced characters, um, you know, even when they end up, you know, behaving in racist ways. Um, it's not like they're one-dimensional uh, which, right. which I think is is a wonderful aspect of the film because nobody on this planet is one dimensional. Um, you know, we all have the potential to have conflicting thoughts. Um, but yeah, so Dan Aiello's uh, really, really quite solid in the film. Uh, Ozzie Davis, who plays Demare, who is this sort of um, you know alcoholic resident of the neighborhood, but well-meaning, um, uh, you know. A well-meaning elder statesman, in a way, even though he he really likes to get his drink on, and he's often trying to woo uh, his real life wife, Ruby D, uh, who pl- <laughs> who plays mother sister, and they of course are a legendary couple. And you know, Spike Lee, I understand, had long wanted to work with Ozzie Davis um, and uh, and Ruby D, and they're both really terrific uh, in those roles. And uh, they would then go on uh, to give really both amazing performances uh, in uh, Jungle Fever, um, playing the parents of uh, Samuel Jackson's character in that film. Um, mm. So yeah, so Ozzie Davis and Ruby D are terrific here as Demayer and Mother Sister. Um, John Turturro as the uh, really virulent racist son of uh, Danny Aiello, and then Richard Edson as his younger uh, kinder, far less racist brother, Vito. Uh, we mentioned Giancarlo Esposito. Spike Lee himself uh, plays Mookie, who is the main character of the film. And uh, the guy uh, that we see, you know, carrying the pizza box on the poster for the film. Um, then um, there's his sister. Uh, I've never known how to pronounce her name, actually. If it's Joy Lee or Joie Lee, because I'm half French and I see J-O-I-E and I think Joie. Uh, but uh, she's in the film uh, as his sister uh, in the movie. Wow. And uh, she's quite good, actually. Um, yeah, she is. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of uh, speaking of actresses, Rosie Perez, who, of course, yeah. kick, kicks off the film with that wonderful, <laughs> wonderful opening credit sequence set to Public Enemies fight the power of dancing. Uh, she's all, beyond the credit sequence. She plays Tina, a Mookie's girlfriend. Mookie this is a character played by um, Spike Lee. She's uh, his girlfriend and mother to his child. And then of course, let's not forget Samuel L. Jackson as Mr. Senior Love Daddy, the uh, DJ um, in the very first post credit scene. And he's sort of the narrator of the film in a way, uh, though it's not like he narrates the entire film. But he's he's often commenting on the film, and then a young Martin Lawrence is in the movie, um, and then we mention Bill Nunn who plays Radio Rahim, 
the um, unfortunate uh, character who ends up being killed by the police and sparking the riot. And there are many more uh, actors that I'm leaving out in smaller parts, but I think that covers, yeah, and Roger Gunvir Smith as Smiley. Um, so it's a really, I think, robust cast of up-and-comers like the director. I mean, Danny Aiello was established, obviously, but uh, a lot of the actors went on uh, to, you know, either continue to act in Spike Lee films or go on and, and do other things. So, yeah, I really like the cast. Does anyone stand out for you? Well, I was going to say, we actually did cover a Martin Lawrence movie that also had Giancarlo Esposito called Nothing to Lose. Um, definitely not as culturally aware as this film by any means. Um, would not compare it uh, in terms of you know quality of a film, but it was a film that my... Uh, my friend Karen and I watched many times growing up. And so we did an episode on it, sort of like a guilty pleasure episode. Um, and yeah, so I just thought of that while I was watching it. <laughs> so I can't comment on its artistic <laughs> or cultural value, but um, yeah, that's, it's great. It's, I, I see it's from 1997, I believe, right? I just looked, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like at the time it was when Martin Lawrence's show Martin was really big and that was probably why we watched it um and i was really surprised i never noticed that uh giancarlo esposito was in it he plays a villain uh, he basically plays almost like a bad version of martin lawrence you'd have to see it but anyway interesting um but i didn't realize that was him and then i was watching it again when we did the episode and then i was you know just reading behind the scenes and i was like i actually had to do a double take just because he looks so different now i mean he's older and he just looks so you know, distinguished. And then the part that he had in the movie was like totally opposite him. Um, just, just didn't seem like himself. So I didn't realize that was him growing up. Right. right. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess like in terms of who stands out, um, you know, probably Spike Lee himself um, and Rosie Perez, I thought. And yeah, I don't know everybody that that's the thing. The cast is really good. So it's hard to pick like one favorite yeah yeah i mean i agree i mean rosie perez is terrific um and uh you know spike gives an even stronger performance than he gave and she's got to have it i mean we did ask him about this when we were in the class and he says yeah you know he's not an actor he put himself if i remember the anecdote correctly he put himself in uh she's got to have it because uh, an actor couldn't do it or dropped out if I'm not, oh, really? if I'm not misremembering it. And then, you know, it just kind of became a thing. And then he would appear. He's obviously has a huge role. I mean, he, 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 in this film, he's also in school days. He stopped putting himself in films as time went on. Uh, but you know, he continues uh, through Malcolm X and uh, Jungle Fever. I forget which one is first. I mean, he can, keeps on acting in his films uh, for quite some time. But I think he's really terrific as an actor in this one. And uh, yeah. yeah. And so there's a lot of really great, great stuff happening. Um, and Samuel Jackson uh, is, I think really solid as the DJ. I mean, an important so part. Young. Yeah. It's weird for me seeing him that young, yeah. like, because, you know, I was, I, you know, I, I was born in the eighties. So for me, like, I think my earliest recollection of what he looks like is like Pulp Fiction. So, you know, to me, I'm like, wow, he's like a baby here. I mean, not really, but he's much younger than I remember him. <laughs> have you ever, have you ever seen Jungle Fever? I don't know. I don't think I have. All right. Well, that's that's a really interesting part for him because that is a film uh, that stars Wesley Snipes um, and uh, and Samuel Jackson. 
that uh, it was a real, you know, Wesley Snipes had been in a number of films uh, prior to that. Uh, he had mm-hmm. he had been in Spike Lee's Mo Better Blues, uh, which is really terrific, um, and he plays the sort of more successful and not druggy brother of um, Samuel Jackson, who who won the Best Supporting Actor at the Cannes Film Festival that year. Um, who and he's he's a crack addict, and um, he's the son of this Reverend played by Ozzie Davis, as I mentioned, and Ruby D. Um, but uh, he gives a really amazing performance in that film, which is just two years later. And I feel like with the one-two punch of Jungle Fever, well, first of Do the Right Thing and then Jungle Fever, I. Uh, as somebody coming into his twenties was like, "Wow, who is this guy?" Right, and then of course, <laughs> in in you know nineteen eighty four with with um, Pulp Fiction, I was like, "Okay, now <laughs> this guy's amazing." And you know, from then on, uh, thanks to Spike Lee and, and thanks to uh, you know the and and, and Quentin Tarantino, basically uh, Samuel Jackson's career was made. <laughs> Um, yeah, he's never really left ever. <laughs> no, no. I mean, here's I mean Spike Lee first, and then and then Quentin really liked him too. So and and he's, yeah. great, he's great as Mr. Senior. Loved it. I love that scene. In fact, you know, I I, I love in terms of, of scenes. Uh, I mm-hmm. love that opening fight, the power dance. Um, yes. And, and then I love right after that the dolly crane pullback, which I've shown in classes quite often uh, because it's such a great way to demonstrate what a dolly crane can do. So it's you look like you're inside the studio. It also teaches about focal length because you look like you're in the studio. The scene opens with an alarm and you're on the lips in an extreme close-up of Samuel Jackson's Mr. Senior Love Daddy. And then you pull back and it turns out you haven't actually physically been in the studio with him at all. You've just been on a long lens. uh, So it looks like you're on his mouth, but you're actually on the other side of the glass. And the camera pulls Mm -hmm. back. There is glass. It's not like they're inserting the glass as the camera goes by. And then the camera does a a pan left as it begins to jib up and you get this view of the neighborhood. And at that moment you see Ozzie Davis's the mayor walking into frame. If I'm remembering correctly, it could be, could be Spike Lee himself as well. Or they could cross paths. There's a lot of crossing paths in the film. That's really mm. quite amazing. There is an interesting anecdote about the, the song fight the power, which opens with the, uh, 1989. Um, if memory serves me correctly, <clears throat> I don't think it's a false memory. I mentioned that I have French, and so I would quite frequently be going to France to see my grandparents. Even at that time, uh, as I was 20 and beyond. And I'm pretty sure that that anthem, if we can call it that, right, it is, a, it is an anthem of resisting the system, was used surprisingly as the French coverage for the U.S. Open. Uh, wow. <laughs> you know, I forget what French channel I was watching while I was at my grandparents, uh, the U.S. Open, the, the tennis tournament. But it's, cra- it's crazy to think that they would use the song. But I re- distinctly remember because I think some programmer at French TV really liked that. Ah, uh, 1989, right? Because it was the 1989 uh, U.S. Open. Uh, yeah, and it sounded kind of that. raucous. It's got that driving beat. But if you listen to the words, it's like, I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a great song, but I'm just wondering if the programmers uh, really intended for, you know, that particular, you know, at, <laughs> that particular message. Yeah. That yeah. particular message for their coverage of the U S open. 
That is funny. So crazy as that may seem, who knows what they were thinking, but I really like the song and I really like that opening credit sequence because you've got that, you know, that projection, that rear projection behind Rosie Perez that changes. It's sort of Brooklyn Brownstones um, and the, the lighting changes color and, uh, you know, she's just dancing and doing different moves. I, I heard an interview with her once where, you know, it's just like she 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 was just encouraged to do these like boxing moves and these fighting moves, which really fits the song. Um, mm-hmm. And and I really like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a powerful opening scene. It like pulls you in uh, right away with the message and with her dancing. I, I think that's really cool that uh, it starts with her too, because I mean, the whole movie is very, focused on uh on Mookie a lot of male characters but then he chose to open it with a strong female character and I thought that was kind of an interesting choice yeah I'd say you know Spike Lee's work um it's interesting to look at Spike Lee's work in general and consider his treatment of female characters I I remember that film I mentioned she's got to have it which is a meditation on um on his main character's sexuality uh Nola Darling who has three different lovers and at the time uh you know a lot of people loved it justifiably and you know some people criticize the sort of male view of female sexuality but in various films he's had interesting takes on his female characters. I, mm-hmm. I think both of the women in Do the Right Thing, the one played by uh, Rosie Perez, Tina, and then uh, Joie or Joy Lee. I really hate the fact that I don't know how to pronounce her name after all these years, um, but uh, there you go, uh, who plays his, uh, his sister, Mookie's sister, Jade, in the film. They're both really important characters, and I think they're both really positive characters. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and then, of course, uh, mother-sister, played by the great Ruby D. Um, but yeah, he doesn't always uh, focus on, on female characters, for sure, um, though he does some. I mean, look at Chirac. Right, um, mm-hmm. yeah. which was his take on his modern t- update of Lysistrata, um, was obviously centered around a female character. So, no, yeah, I think he's an interesting director uh, by all means, and he certainly does sometimes write some really great female characters. Yeah. Um, was there some other scenes that you liked? I've got plenty more to talk about. <laughs> um, go ahead and hit me with another scene. Right. Well, <laughs> this is not so much a scene as I love that red wall. Uh, with, with the these three guys in front of me who form uh, this sort of uh, trio of a Greek chorus, right? Commenting on the neighborhood and on the action. And I remember we all asked Wynn Thomas, the production designer, about that red wall, you know, whether they painted it red. And if memory serves, he was like, no, it was there in the neighborhood. Um, oh. But uh, obviously the choice to use it uh, is a great choice. Um, yeah. and I could be misremembering it, but whatever, it's a great visual choice because <laughs> it accentuates the heat, um, that, that red it wall. It does, yeah. which is a big theme in the film too, right? Oh yeah. That the heat, uh, is both, you know, a metaphor and physically there. <laughs> yeah. But I also think those, those three guys that you're talking about, they also represent, I think, a, you know, an older generation and how they address, uh, the, the racism in their neighborhood it's such a contrast to the way that you know um that bugging out and some of the other young people respond to it you know so it's there there seems to be like a clash just such a different response and i i I thought that was interesting because again it's like nuanced there's many different viewpoints in the film 
Yeah, and those three actors are in front of the wall are not nobodies. They're um, you know three guys: Paul Benjamin, Frankie Faison, I think that's how you pronounce his name, and Robin Harris. Who, if you look up their credits, they've all done lots of stuff. They're great. I mean, they they do a really great job as these sort of men who've sort of seen it all. Um, their lives haven't necessarily gone anywhere particularly exciting, um, but they still have their points of view. Uh, and uh, I think they make a really interesting collection. Uh, and of course they then comment on the changing nature of the neighborhood. Cause there's a lot of discussion in the film about, um, you know, how this is a black neighborhood where the uh, stores are owned by either a white man like Danny Aiello or the Korean yeah. grocers. Uh, and there's a lot of discussion of that. And at one point there's a white bicyclist uh, who comes by played by John Savage and that's a comment about the, you know, the gentrification of the neighborhood and what that might mean to the longtime residents. So I, I think that's, I think the film tackles so many interesting issues. Yeah, it, it does. And and I also kind of felt like, you know, Mookie's character, um, I mean, he's sort of more on the sidelines than some of the other characters, but I think just in general, Spike Lee, I'm sure being, you know, pretty young when this came out, when he was directing this, it's like, you felt like he was commenting on those relationships he has with, you know, people that are a little bit older than him and how they view everything and how different, you know, the younger generation views those same issues. Um, so I kind of, I, I liked that as well. And and in some ways to me, it almost felt like, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but sometimes I felt like, you know, both Mookie and Buggin' Out were almost like both representations of Spike Lee in a way, like, different sides of him almost you know because one of them is pretty passive and then the other one is so passionate but there just seemed to be like a connection to me almost well it's interesting you say that because of course the film ends not that martin luther king is passive i would never call martin luther king passive but the end the film ends with those competing quotes one from martin luther king jr and one from malcolm x the one advocating a more peaceful protest kind of way to change the system and the one a more militant approach of course you know malcolm x himself changed as he got older but a younger malcolm x certainly um you know advocated for resistance however that Mm -hmm. may appear when resistance is needed because you know there's been so much violence in the history of our country meted out towards people of color and african-americans that um, you know, why is it, you know, so horrific to imagine that violence would be met with violence? So I think that's in- right. interesting uh, dual quotes at the end. You know, speaking of young, you said Spike Lee was young. Just so our, your listeners know, he was 32 at the time this film came out. That's pretty yeah. pretty amazing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I'm, I, yeah, it's, it's very young and he looks young <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, wow, he had such an incredible idea. I mean, he directed and wrote this film. I think he wrote it in a pretty short amount of time too. He just kind of commented on what was happening at the time and was just inspired and put together such a great film. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned uh, many times she's got to have it. And then those Nike commercials where his character Mars Blackman was appearing, including with um, basketball great uh, Michael Jordan. Uh, You can look those up on YouTube if anybody wants to check them out. And I I highly recommend watching she's got to have it. But if you just want a quick, uh, glance of the Mars Blackman character, uh, Google Mars Blackman, uh, Nike or you know, Spike Lee, Nike. I mean, he's directed quite a lot of commercials in, in his time, but these were mm-hmm. these were fun little appearances way back way back then. Um, 
I really like John Turturro in this film. Um, I mean, he plays a, a, a bad character, right? The the racist older son of Danny Aiello. Danny Aiello himself is an interesting character because he appears, you know, to be a good guy for a while, albeit a paternalistic one who sort of views the people in the neighborhood as his, you know, at first yes. that, that might seem unfair uh, to, to use that possessive, but as, it, as the film goes on, you realize you know, the extent, the limits of his charity towards them. Um, but, you know, and John Turturro's character is just far more virulently racist. Um, right. But nevertheless, as I said, there's a three dimensionality to his character. And John Turturro is an actor of great capability. And he's worked, mm-hmm. you know, with Spike Lee many times, um, in, in, including in Jungle Fever and many more films. You know, I would say that whereas, um, uh, Samuel Jackson's career was made by the combination of Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino. I would say John Turturro's career was made with a combination of Spike Lee and the Coen brothers, right? In terms of the, yeah, the kinds yeah. of films and roles <laughs> that, that he got. But anyway, he's really he's really great here. And I love the scene between him uh, and he plays his character's name uh, is Pino. Uh, and he's mm-hmm. the older brother, and then his younger brother Vito, who's played by Richard Edson, where um, he pulls him in uh, to uh, into his into uh, this sort of makeshift back room uh, and has an argument over family versus neighborhood, and you really see uh, the the difference between the two brothers. They're both really good, and of course, this comes uh, almost. Uh, 40 minutes after an earlier scene in the film, which starts again with John Turturro talking to Spike Lee's Mookie, uh, where Mookie calls him out about how he, John Turturro, likes black culture, um, yeah. but is so racist. Uh, and then that immediately morphs into this wonderful Spike Lee moment. Because Spike Lee, as a director, is always trying to insert teachable moments in his films. Um, if you think about Black Klansman and then The Five Bloods just recently, he's always inserting these little asides. And um, he's contextualizing sort of what's happening in the film. And here, you know, suddenly all these characters um, turn and they're addressing the camera directly. Um, mm-hmm. And saying really racist things about the other characters. So the Korean character is saying racist things about the black characters. Black characters are saying you know racist things about white people. Um, the Puerto Rican characters may be saying you know there's this like cross pollination of uh, vitriol. Um, and then um, Samuel Jackson's Mr. Senior Love Daddy as the occasional narrator is like time out or whatever he says uh, and, yeah. and gets people to stop and think about what they're saying. I, I really like those sort of dual uh, discussions of racism in the neighborhood. Well, in there's also a moment where Sal is, I can't remember exactly what he's saying, but he's saying something about how it's his pizza place and, you know, just kind of grandstanding and the camera like pulls back and he's wearing Nikes. <laughs> <clears throat> and I feel like that's not an accident. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, especially given uh, Spike Lee's involvement and, you know, those ads and then just the the commentary of of the fact that, yeah, it does feel like uh, white people love black culture, but then that love doesn't translate uh, deeper than that. And I think Sal's such an interesting character because although his son is so extremely racist, it, it feels like Pino is like who Sal used to be or what's just underneath the surface, almost like... He'd like to think he's not like that, 
but as the film wears on and we see different sides to him unfortunately it's all rooted in the same thing and it's kind of like part of their you know the culture that they're in that they view themselves that way as you know they i think there's a part where sal says something to mookie like you're like family to me blah 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 but it's all lip service at the end you know all it takes is one incident for him to to turn on him and yeah i think the movie makes such an excellent point about how even all these like little seemingly innocent things are part of a much bigger thing you know uh bugging out saying why can't you put black people up there like what's the reason and he's just like well it's my place why don't you get your own place which sounds a lot like why don't you direct your own movies um to me a little bit like a little bit of a commentary on the film industry and then it's also like yeah what is the reason and he can't ever really answer that but the truth is it's just racism um and i i just think that it tells that it makes that the movie makes that point in such an interesting way to where it's like undeniable at the end, you know? Yeah. I think that's a really smart way to look at it. I, I like how you, how you framed that. Um, it reminds me this idea that, you know, paternalistic uh, benevolent racism, let's call it mm-hmm. that benevolent racism is, you know, just as racist as virulent racism is uh, something is a something addressed in a better moment uh, uh, I mean, I like the film, but it sometimes is heavy handed. It's a better moment in uh, Richard Attenborough's Gandhi. Uh, mm-hmm. There's this uh, scene, a horrific scene. Uh, this is the film from 1982 that sort of swept the Oscars that year, won eight Oscars. Um, ben Kingsley plays um, Gandhi. And there's been this horrific scene where um, there's been a massacre of people. Uh, you know, women, children, peaceful protesters. I don't remember the scene exactly. And then we cut to uh, afterwards the trial of the military leader who, who the British leader who ordered that. And, you know, the British are apologetic in front of Gandhi, uh, who at this point in the film is, is a fairly influential figure already. And his point is, you know, yes, what he did was horrific, but it's really just an extension of your less horrific policies that are just as racist. In other words, yes, this man was a killer, but uh, what you're doing on a daily basis, though less fatal, is really the same thing. It's just perhaps to a lesser degree, but what does that matter? And I, I think of that when I think of your discussion. Yeah, I think, you know, that's something that I really believe and, and try to live by the fact that, you know, a lot of people sort of want to rate incidences is like oh this is really important this is not important i remember when the oscar so white uh twitter hashtag was going around people were saying well why don't we focus on real racism why would we focus on you know what's going on in the academy or what's going on in movies and the reality is it's all part of the same thing you can't really in my opinion i mean yes there are some things that are worse than others but you can't really make this like sliding scale, like, oh, this is a one or two and this is a 10. It's just all bad. Yeah. And I think this movie just perfectly illustrates why that's such um, such a reality because it seems pretty benign. Oh, well, they just won't put a picture on the wall. It's his place. You're, you know, rationalizing it. But by the end, you know, you see that there is a real issue here, whether they dress it up or not, or whether they minimize it or not, it's still happening. So yeah. Another scene that I really like in the movie uh, that connects to later in the film, I think is the scene with the fire hydrant. 
Oh, uh, oh yes, when, with the kid. Yeah. The kids are playing with the fire hydrant, and they soak the car of the guy. Yeah, and and it's kind of like you know, again, there's this theme of like heat in the movie, and uh, you know, it, it occurred to me in that moment when they're using the fire hydrant. And water's just going everywhere. And, you know, some of the older people are complaining about it. Don't do that. You know, knock it off. And then they hose that that older man down in his really nice car. <laughs> and he complains to the police. And the police are kind of like, they don't care. This this feels like a very harmless, quote unquote, crime, right? Um, that they've dealt with many times. The, the town has their fun. They turn on the fire hydrant. The cops come out and turn it back off. That seems like that's a regular occurrence, but it also to me highlights the fact that they obviously don't have like a local like swimming pool that they go to, or at least it doesn't seem like it. They never show that. Um, and there's also a theme in all their homes of how hot they are. So they don't have great AC. And I just kind of think, I don't know, just to me, that scene felt like. I don't know. It's just kind of upsetting. That's like their only outlet is this fire hydrant. Right. Well, I think fire hydrants in New York City have long been a source of both uh, cooling water and amusement to the poor (laughs) poor residents of the city, irrespective of race. Mm -hmm. Like, I think this is a longstanding tradition in a city like New York. Um, Sure. And. But I, I, I think this scene definitely speaks to that um, and to all those issues you raised. And yes, the the lack of AC, of course, I, I, I would need to go back into my own history to remember um, how widespread central air was in the 80s. But certainly people, I, I, I mean, um, Tina has a wall unit, right, uh, in, mm-hmm. in her apartment. I think a single one, uh, it appears, uh, where she's sort of cooling herself and, and Mookie, uh, and she, I think, stick their head in the freezer. And of course, there's that sex scene involving Rosie Perez's nipple and and an ice cube, <laughs> which <Right>. which which, <laughs> uh, which it feels a little gratuitous, to be perfectly honest. Um, but, yeah, uh, I think she said so as well. Yeah, but <laughs> I mean, as much as I like the film, it's like, why is this in here? Like, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really seem to fit. <laughs> it doesn't really seem to fit. Why are we seeing an ice cube slide across Rosie Perez's breast? Um, but there you go. It's certainly that scene is showing the ways in which some of the denizens of the neighborhood uh, keep clean. You know, speaking of scenes in the street, there are two others that I like. So there's there's Radio Rahim, again, played by Bill Nunn, uh, who has his one uh, encounter with Mookie on the street, Radio Rahim, of course, and one of the things I like about the film uh, is that Radio Rahim is not necessarily an agreeable person, um, which makes the loss of his life no less a tragedy. But I appreciate that Spike Lee is not sacrificing uh, somebody that we have thought of as a saint throughout the film. That would be too easy, right? And he's yeah, he's, and and also that perpetuates an idea that I mean, I think he's commenting on the fact that every time something like this happens. There's like this rush of people to say, oh, well, they did this, this and this. And they, you know, they they were like this. They were like that. It's like really none of all of that's irrelevant because, you know, human life is worth so much uh, that it doesn't matter if they were, you know, mother, like if they were, you know, a perfect person or not. It's still a huge tragedy, like you're saying. Yeah. And, you know, annoying people is not a crime uh, punishable <laughs> by, by anything other than being, you know, yelled at back. Um, but, right. but anyway, the, yeah. the way that Radio Rahim annoys people is he walks through the neighborhood with this ginormous boombox that is playing 
public enemies fight the power. Uh, mm-hmm. And he crossed paths with Mookie, who is is either on his way to Sal's or is delivering a pizza. I believe he has a pizza uh, box. And he has a scene that's a direct homage to Charles Lawton's 1955, The Night of the Hunter, where Radio Rahim has love and hate uh, tattooed or written on each knuckle, uh, on, on each hand on the knuckles, just like Robert Mitchum has tattooed on his knuckles in The Night of the Hunter. For people unfamiliar with The Night of the Hunter, Robert Mitchum plays a psychotic uh, so-called minister. In the film, he kills Shelley Winters and then pursues her children uh, who have discovered what an evil man he is, and he has tattooed love and hate. So that scene is a direct homage. should point out uh, that Spike Lee uh, is a huge film buff uh, and a film historian, and of course... Uh, as somebody who loves movies, he's working in clearly a scene from one of his favorite films, but in a totally different way. So I love uh, that scene. And then there's another moment with DeMayer uh, where he uh, behaves heroically and thereby finally uh, gains approval from Mother Sister, the woman that he's wanted to gain approval from uh, throughout the film, because he saves a kid who is run- who runs into the street without thinking to get a snow cone. Um, And he runs in and he tackles him to keep him from being hit by a car. And the reason why I like that scene as a, as a teacher of a film is because the way it's shot, um, it looks like the car is bearing down on the kid, but if you look carefully uh, it's shot on a long lens. Uh, And so uh, you do that in scenes where you want to have, you know, a vehicle or something dangerous appear to be right behind another character. Because what a, one of the properties of a long lens, what's also called a telephoto lens, which is if you have a zoom lens, it's the property when you zoom in all the way, is that it foreshortens distance. Uh, so mm-hmm. it, not only does an object that's further away from your plane of focus um, look out of focus, but it looks closer, just out of focus. And so anytime you have a scene with two vehicles, one on top of the other, or somebody stepping on the street and you want it to be less dangerous than it might be, you shoot on a long lens. So that's a really great scene uh, to, to demonstrate when I'm trying to teach properties of lenses. Um, so yeah, I like that scene too. I What do you make of the scene where with Demare where he's getting kind of castigated by the younger men uh in his neighborhood that are like they're basically like you're a big drunk and you deserve everything that's happening to you and like i don't know they're like extremely judgmental and it's kind of a heartbreaking scene it is but i think it also speaks to you know perhaps the hopelessness that has taken over a man of his generation and that we see starting Mm -hmm. to happen to the men in front of the red wall Right. And so the film is speaking to the many ways in which uh, primarily African-Americans, but people of color beyond black Americans are repressed by the system. Right. Um, Something that we hope our nation in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder at the hands of the police is beginning to truly reckon with. It appears that we are seeing a greater understanding by white Americans of their privilege and of the many ways in which um, black Americans and other people of color in this country have been kept down than we have seen in the past. I'm hoping that this will continue. And I would just like to point out uh, that I, I, I I worry I'm, I'm coming across as like this 
guy who thinks he's a super woke white guy. Um, <laughs> and I just, I mean, I'm, I'm well aware of, of the many ways in which I have benefited from my privilege and done things and said things that, you know, now looking back, you know, I, I regret and see as sort of highly insensitive. Um, you know, I've, I've never been intentionally racist in my life, but that doesn't mean that I have not done and said things that looking back, I'm like, huh, that really came from a place of lack of awareness. Um, mm-hmm. And I just, I, I, I just urge everyone, whether they're watching Do the Right Thing or just reacting to the moment, to just take a hard look at their own behavior <clears throat> and their own way in which, I mean, I should say everyone uh, who benefits from white privilege <laughs> uh, should take a hard look at their own behavior uh, and, and the ways in which they perhaps could be better allies of uh, black Americans and other people of color. I think this is a great time to do that and to reevaluate uh, with or without shame. I mean, there's no shame in evolving, right? Um, and, and sort of figure out ways to improve uh, how, how they are in this world. And I certainly am trying to use this moment to do the same. I am far from perfect and I am well aware of that. And we should support black art. And so I think, you know, you know, Spike yeah. Lee has a new film on Netflix. Aesthetically, artistically, I had a few problems with it, but it's still a really important film to five bloods. Um, you know, people should see that and they should go back and I think look at, you know, the entirety of his work. I mean, there was a time when I was super excited at, at every new Spike Lee film that was coming out. I'd really sort of been won over by his work with She's Gotta Have It and um, Do the Right Thing. But, you know, beyond those, I mean, I, I was, I was, I loved Mo Better Blues, which stars Denzel Washington and Wesley Snipes. Um, and then there was Jungle Fever. Uh, and then there was Malcolm X. Um, and then, you know, Crooklyn Clockers, Girl Six. And of course, then, you know, he started to do documentaries as well. Four Little Girls, mm-hmm. heartbreaking, heartbreaking documentary. Um, if people haven't seen it, uh, about the bombing of uh, a church. Uh, where four girls were killed. Um, it's the 16th Street Church in Birmingham, Alabama. That was bombed in 1963. Um, it's just such a great and powerful documentary. Uh, and of course, there's a plethora these days, perhaps plethora is the wrong word, but there's far greater numbers of black filmmakers at work in today's world than there was when Spike Lee was coming up. So um, if we're going to support black artists and black art, um, there are more options than there used to be. Um, There's a documentary series people can watch on Netflix called They've Got to Have Us, uh, which addresses this issue. There's Ava DuVernay's 13th, a great documentary on Netflix. And of course, far more Spike Lee films, not all of which deal with race in America. I mean, he's, he's got other concerns. He's a complex human being, right? He's, he doesn't always want to address America's history of racism. Um, you know, 25th hour is a great film about nine 11. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Inside man is a wonderful thriller about a bank heist. Um, so certainly he made quite a lot of films that have at least as their subtext, if not their main text, uh, race in America, but he has a variety of interests. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, one more scene I kind of wanted to touch on, or one, maybe one issue in the movie I wanted to touch on was that, um, I really like the way he handles the police in the film because we meet them two or three times and they're not these like paper thin, like bad guys. You know what I mean? Like, 
Um, there is that scene where they tell Sal to move out of the neighborhood, which I think is, you know, pretty cringy, right? They're like, oh, this neighborhood's going downhill. But then they also later, um, during the fire hydrant scene, uh, you know, defend the people in the neighborhood. So they kind of show like both sides of them to where I think, I don't know, you hear this argument a lot that it's like, well, there's some good police. And it's like, that's not really the overarching issue. (laughs) And I think that Spike Lee kind of handled that in this movie really well of like, yeah, I know they're not just like all evil bad guys, but it doesn't change the outcome at the end. I think that's an excellent Excellent point um, that, again, I, I, I couldn't say better. So, yes, here, here. Um, I, I just want to point out, I, I said something that is perhaps misleading. 25th Hour is by no means directly about 9-11. Uh, it's just the subtext of that film uh, is about 9-11. Yeah. It's, about a, it's about a drug dealer played by Edward Norton sort of uh, uh, spending the 24 hours before he enters jail. Um, so please, nobody write nasty, nasty oh, okay. emails to Lisa saying that I misrepresented 25th <laughs> hour. Um, but, but that's a really interesting film also has Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. Um, oh, yeah, nice. yeah. I mean, he's, he's made some great, great films has Spike Lee with some great, great actors, but yes, I mean, your point about the police is really well taken. I mean, uh, I, that's what I said. Like nobody's one dimensional. And yet these two guys that we've seen, you know, one of them ends up killing Radio Rahim. So um, you know, puts him in um, a chokehold with uh, with a baton. I, I, you know, just a variant of how George Floyd uh, was killed. So, yeah, yeah, and yeah, it just I think it addresses it so well, and yeah, the whole the whole film is just so incredibly well thought out, and all the little scenes add up to one big ending. Um, I watched like a five minute clip of uh, Spike Lee breaking the scene down um, at the very end. And he calls it, he's like, you know, a lot of people want to call it the, the looting scene. He's like, Nope, it's the murder scene. Um, which I think is another interesting point too, of like, he, he would get irritated when people at the end were like, well, why did Mookie throw the trash can in there? And, you know, was he trying to actually kind of in a weird way defend Sal? And it's like, no, he was just angry. His friend just died. And it just kind of, again, something that he kind of had to deal with in behind the scenes is people being a little more upset about the pizza place burning down. And it's like, yikes, guys, like, how, how do you walk away with that at the end of the film? Certainly the looting at the very end is a really extreme visual, I guess. And maybe that's part of it. But it also says a lot that people would immediately be concerned about a pizza place over a person. Yeah, they're not equivalent. Uh, hello, listen, listeners, yeah, uh, if close. anyone thinks they are, uh, it's <laughs> not the same thing. A pizza place does not uh, equal a human life. Um, and I think how you would react to that scene could be a litmus test on whether or not you're a racist. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, at the very least, you're not very... Uh, self-aware. So we've talked about a lot of contributors to the film, but I wanted to just mention mention one more, and that is the cinematographer, uh, uh, Ernest Dickerson. Ernest Dickerson shot every Spike Lee film, starting with uh, Joe's Bed-Stuy Barbershop, We Cut Heads, through um, Malcolm X. And then he, he really had dreams to be a director rather than a director of photography, what we call a DP in the business. Um, and he went on to direct, uh, Juice was his directorial debut. 
Uh, and then he did a film called Blind Faith. He never really made it uh, in in as a director. I mean, he he's worked as a director. He directed episodes of The Wire. Uh, he directed um, you know, episodes of Dexter. Uh, continuing to work with David Simon, the showrunner of The Wire. He directed episodes of Treme. Directed episodes of The Walking Dead. But like as a as an auteurish director that we can sort of reference, that's not how his career went. But that's what he wanted to do. Uh, I think he's a great DP. I would have loved to have seen him continue to shoot. Uh, and he's also featured in this wonderful uh, documentary that I love to show in class and that I recommend to anybody who wants to understand the history of cinematography called Visions of Light. He's the first voice. He's the mm. first voice that we hear in that documentary, Visions of Light. Um, he's really great cinematographer, but he wanted to be a director. Um, so, But his work on all those uh, early Spike Lee films is really exceptional. I'm writing down visions of light so I can look yeah. that up later. <laughs> That's great. Well, are there any other scenes that you feel like we haven't uh, touched on? Well, yet? we've covered the ones that, uh, you know, are important to me. I, I didn't feel like talking about the long escalation to the, uh, to the riot uh, that destroys the pizzeria in reaction to um, Radio Rahim's death, because it's just intense and brutal. Um, but I do know that that, pizzeria that they destroy was a set uh, built for the movie. Apparently if, me- if, okay. if memory serves correctly, um, the people in the neighborhood <laughs> were a little confused because they, you know, it looks like a pizzeria, <laughs> right? It's coming up. Or it's like, you know, <laughs> obviously they had to explain, you don't shoot a movie in a neighborhood without explaining to everyone in the neighborhood what you're doing. But uh, if, I, if I remember discussions in class about this, uh, there was some confusion over what was happening. Um, and then something I do remember uh, Roger Gunvir Smith telling me is that he stayed in character for, you know, basically the entirety of the shoot so that, you know, a lot of people thought because he was not an established actor at that time. A lot of people thought that he was this guy in the neighborhood that Spike Lee had just hired this guy who stuttered, um, you know, and of course, oh, and of course wow. it's, you know, why does this character stutter? Well, it's a, I think it's a metaphor, right. For sort of learning to speak uh, your truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's perhaps too simplistic, but yeah, he really got into this. I mean, he's more, he's more than uh, my apologies to people who, who, who have a stutter, uh, if, if I'm speaking insensitively about it. Um, he also seems to have perhaps some cognitive uh, disabilities or some cognitive um, um, difficulties. Um, and so he stayed in character uh, as this person. And I remember him talking about that, and I, I think with some justifiable pride that he was in this character for so long um, on the set that quite a lot of people didn't realize that he was an actor. Well, I guess this brings me to my last couple of questions for you then uh, to kind of summarize what we've been talking about this whole time. Uh, why do you like this film so much? Why do you think you've seen it so many times? Well, I think it was a very important film f- when it came out. Um, it established Spike Lee as um, truly established Spike Lee as a director to watch because a single feature like she's got to have it that might play at the Cannes Film Festival You've got to do more than that, right? I mean, that's a great debut, but, um, you know, then he went and made School Days, which is also an interesting film, and then he made this, um, and it got Oscar nominations. So it's important in the establishment of Spike Lee as a cinematic force, and Spike Lee has been so important for so many reasons. Um, so 
I mean, it's just, it's, it's historically important. And it's also, I think a damn fine film. I think the way it addresses the issue of racism in America, the root causes of racism, the issues of police brutality. I, I think it just does a really phenomenal job uh, and full credit to Spike Lee's writing and direction for that. Uh, and then it's really fun, you know, especially now looking back at these fun is the wrong word given the subject matter, but you know, the film is not bleak throughout. I mean, it's got comedy. Um, um, right. No. I, yeah. It's, it's, it's layered. layered. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a treat to watch because it's a, you know, cinematic, masterpiece like it's done so well it's skillful and it's and that's always fun to watch yeah but so i mean i was saying it's fun to see a lot of these actors so young when i go back and revisit it you know except for the as we both agree perhaps gratuitous um nudity involving rosie perez and an ice cube um the film i think really has (laughs) has so much going for it yeah well and what's your elevator pitch you think to somebody that hasn't seen this movie before like how do you how do you pitch this movie to them? Think you know about America's history of racism, over-policing, and redlining? Think again. Watch Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing for a brilliantly nuanced take on all these issues and more. I love it. Yeah, I think, you know... We keep saying it, but um, when you when you look the movie up like real quick in Google, it pulls up all these articles. Uh, I think also because Spike Lee did um, like a live Q and A recently uh, because of what's been going on in the news. But um, you know, history repeats itself, unfortunately, and sometimes we act like issues are brand new and they're really not. Um, and also, it's a great film. Um, I think there's so many reasons to check it out and to check out Spike Lee's career as we've talked about a lot today. Um, and yeah, that's my, that's my pitch. Excellent. (laughs) Well, (laughs) well, Christopher, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time out to chat with me about this movie. I'm so glad that you picked it and I do hope that you'll come back. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. I would love to, it's been great chatting with you and I would, I would love to be back and keep up the good work. 